Let's open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we pick back up where we left off last week, and we will pick back up in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Now, if you remember, last week we ended 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17. It's really simple here. It's not complex. You don't have to worry about the topic that I covered last week. You know exactly where I left off last week in the, in the teaching. But if you remember last week, Paul has just declared the idea that the cross could be made of no effect if it were presented with the wisdom of man or the wisdom of words. And Paul said, I'm not out there, even though I have the ability, I have the skill sets, I have the history, I have the background, my, my, my pedigree, I could come out and I could sway people with words to do whatever I wanted them to do, to get what I wanted to get. But I'm not going to do that because it could cause to be uh, the, the message of the cross to be of no effect. It would have no impact on the lives of the people who were going to hear it. Yes, I might get them to do things like make them give me money and make them go doing this and there and go there because I can sway people with my words and entice them. But that would not bring glory to God. It would not give the long-term eternal effect that God wanted to have in regards to the message of the cross. And that's what our topic is today, the message of the cross, because Paul continues to address the problem in the, the Corinth church here. We find that they were struggling between the power of the gospel versus the weakness of men's wisdom. People and the men, the women, they were starting to get wrapped up into what they wanted and how they wanted it in the church. They started allowing the things of this world to start creeping into, into the church and not the church going out and then affecting the world around them or their community. And Paul first addressed for us to be able to, for that, to, to, to not uh, harm the church because what was causing it was causing a division within the church because they were, the people were starting to put their eyes on other men the Apollo, the Apollos and those, or their, what they wanted and how they wanted to do it, and it was causing division. And Paul addressed that, that there is one Savior and one body. There should be unity in the brothers and the sisters. There shouldn't be division there. And that he also reminded them that they, when you gave your life to Christ, you got in front of in people, in front of your brothers and sisters, to declare that you were saved, that God had transformed and regenerated your heart. You were baptized to prove that you were, you were saying that you were going to die of the old self. You were no longer going to live this life for yourself. You're going to live for Christ. You're going to be resurrected like you're coming out of the water, like you're resurrected in Christ. That's how we're to live. And that spiritual baptism into Christ's body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, is key to our walk with Christ. We are to die of self. But today we see Paul continues addressing this problem within the church. And he continues, it brings him now to the actual message of the cross. And we see here in verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians... He sees that the central point here is how the perishing 
sees the message of the cross versus those who are being saved see the message of the cross. There's two points of views of how you do it. There's the goats and the sheep. There's always one of two categories. And we're going to see, as he outlines this, how the world sees this versus how the people who are saved, the child of God, how they are to see the message of the cross. And in verse 18, he starts by saying, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the message of the cross has two different effects on people, depending on where you stand in your relationship with Christ. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are going to hell, they've chosen not to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They've chosen not to surrender their life to Christ. They have not asked for forgiveness. They have not been regenerated. They have not been born again. They're on the path of perishing. And those who hear the message of the, of the cross thinks it's absolutely foolishness that anyone would believe it. They would just look at you like you're crazy. You've got two heads on your head. How, what, do you, what do you mean that you believe that? And to those who reject the salvation of the cross, the idea of being saved through the work of a crucified man is foolishness to those who live in darkness. It's, it's like they can't believe you're even saying those words. That you put your trust in a man who died on a cross? For your eternal salvation? And you believe that? They think People who are perishing, they think you're crazy. But the words of the message of the cross sound kind of noble and religious in our 20, 20th century kind of ears. But in the first century, the first century, the saying message of the cross was about the this, 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 this thing that we would equate to, you know, back there, they would, what? You're gonna, someone's going to die on the cross and you're going to follow that man and you're going to honor that man? You're going to worship that man? That's like us today saying, we're going to take someone and take them to the electric chair and then we're going to worship them and praise them and glorify them and, and follow them the rest of our lives and put our internal trust in for someone who went to the electric chair and was crucified. They, it would be the same kind of weight, like, are you kidding me right electric chair is for criminals electric chair is for someone who is uh you know ultimately getting punished for what their their acts have been and so that there's this conflict of this message that we're saying here that that they think that this cruel humiliating unrelenting instrument of death called the cross would be in some way acceptable and the ones who are perishing think there's a completely foolishness to think that. But to us who are being saved, Paul says here, is the power of God. Yes, it's a strange message. Yes, it's very interesting to think that we would, we would trust in a man who was, who was crucified on a cross. But to those who trust in it are being saved. This message of the cross becomes to them the actual power of God. It's transforming. Because there's this inherent power in the preaching of the true gospel. 
When it is received with faith, the hearing and the trusting in the true gospel will bring the power of God into your life. If you have not experienced the power of God in your life, you need to rely and go back to the gospel, go back to the truth, go back to the cross, the message of the cross, because it is transforming of your mind. It is transforming of your life. Anyone who comes to me and says, I just cannot overcome the things of these wicked things that come from my past, and I always take them back where? To the cross. Back to the message of the cross because God dying on the cross for their sins has freed them. If they trust and believe in that. If they can't get over their past and the vast mistakes, I take them back to the cross. Because God has forgiven them. If you find yourself of hopelessness, because you're putting your eyes on these things of this world and the things that are going on, the craziness, you take them back to the cross, the message of the cross, because God has given you eternal life, a hope and a promise of eternity with him. There is no other answers, my brothers and sisters. And to turn to anything else or anyone else in this world, you've misled them. Because the power is in the message of the cross. Even though there's not anything in this verse, verse 18, talking about the gospel, but we just got to refer you back to verse 17 that connects here to verse 18, where he did talk about the gospel. Because the message of the cross is the gospel. And it was impossible for the apostle Paul to preach the gospel without presenting the message of the cross. So many people today will present the message of, of the cross or the message of God's love for you, but they don't break you back to the message of the cross itself, the gospel. You'll find a lot of topical teaching and preaching today. They'll talk about the high moral standard. That is not preaching the gospel. Do you realize that? Preaching the universal fatherhood of God is not preaching the gospel. Preaching the universal brotherhood of man is not preaching the gospel. The gospel is the message of the cross. And that is why we always come back to the cross when we're in our struggles. And we find ourselves lukewarm at times in our life. That day seems to be not focused on God. You keep focusing and we're getting wrapped up into the things of this world. You must come back to the cross to allow you to have the power of God to bring you out and moving you forward. That is the one step that will transform your life. And when we look at these verb tenses, are perishing or are being saved are significant because they both describe a work in progress. Each of us is definitely moving in one of those two directions. You are perishing or you are being saved. There is a movement you're on. There are two different roads here that are roads of progress in your life. The question is, is which road are you on today? Oh, I hope and I pray that you are on the road of being saved, not on the road of, being, of, of perishing. 
And then Paul continues here, and he shows a comparison between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God here. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So he here refers back to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, and he Paul shows that in spiritual matters, God opposes the wisdom of man. He not only will oppose it, he will actually destroy the wisdom of man and because he will not bow down to it. So when there is a spiritual matter, you must seek after God's wisdom of that matter. You do not seek after man's wisdom. Because man's wisdom in spiritual matters, we just learn, we know, just know that he will destroy it. And so let's practicality, application here. You have a spiritual issue, a spiritual things in front of you. Who do you turn to first? Do you turn to God and start asking him what he is, what's his truth about that? Do you get into the word of God and do you seek after that truth? Or do you quickly pick up and call Uncle Smammy and say, Uncle Sammy, can you tell me what you think I should do because you had this experience and, oh, you've gone through this and don't you know someone who knows someone who knows someone that could help me? That's the wisdom of man. I'm not saying there's not great counsel of many. As long as it's biblical counseling, and if you go to that many, they're going to take you and say, where did you, did you, what did you, have you been talking to God about this yet? No, I'm, com- I'm calling you first. Well, no, 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 let's go to God, let's open up the word, that's where we're going to go. That, if you're going to seek counsel, the godly men or women are going to take you to the scripture. Are you with me? How holy, amen, okay, okay, we're awake here, good. Are you tracking with me on the application here? Because if you seek for God's or man's wisdom, he says he'll just destroy it. He'll, he'll make it so clear that that was the wrong answer. You and I are always felt, find ourselves going, oh my gosh, why did I even think about doing that? Why did I even contemplate? Why did I even ask their opinion? You know, you ever been there where you go, oh, that was the last thing I should have done is ask their opinion? Because they just deflated you because they just wiped you out and, and told you, oh, why do you even trust in God's stuff? You need to just pull up your bootstraps and get to work. No, no. Seek him first, get direction, and then once he gives you the direction, be immediate obedience, pull up your bootstraps, and start doing what he's asked you to do. That's the sequence. Because the, the wisdom of man is foolishness. It's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be destroyed. God's going to wipe that out. And then he says right here in verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So Paul asks these questions to get them to stimulate them. Okay, where's the wise men in here that you're leaning on? Where's the scribe, the, the lawyer? Where's he? Where's the disputer of this age? Because he's saying, in light of what God has said in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, now where is those wise men? If God is going to take out those wise men, take out those, those lawyers who think they know everything, scribe, 
they know everything, the, 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 the law. And the disputer of this age, who's that? Was a man who wanted to dispute every issue and solve it by human reasoning. And there's lots of them then. And there's lots of humanistic people today who wants to reason everything from a human perspective. And they trust in their human thinking. He says, we're all those people. When God just destroys and takes out all that wisdom. You'll be left with what? Well, turning to God's wisdom. That's where we're supposed to turn. That's the plain, simple point here. Because there is no wise man, there is no scribe, there is no debater of this age who can do what Jesus Christ has done. There is no one else. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. And it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. There is this this constant tendency to think, even today, in the back in those days, that if you find the smartest person or the most wisest of humans, they always had this great opinions, they always had this lofty kind of theological, philosophical kind of perspective when you talk to them, and they talk all these rhymes and rhythms and stuff. Somehow these people know more about the things of God than anybody else. That of course you would turn to that person. Oh, this person is really smart because he's, he's really rich. We must got to talk to them about the things of God. We're not going to talk to the guy who, can, who lives a simple, content life that has no, hardly just two pennies to, to rub together, who hasn't achieved a, a PhD degree and didn't, hasn't done world travels and stuff. Ah, don't go to them. What are they going to know? See, that's the foolishness that we get wrapped up in because we put our eyes, we, we seek after what we can see versus going by faith in what God is saying here. We're so quick to reach out to those who, who have this, they think they're smart and wise humans, will know more about God, but God did not find through human wisdom, but only through the message of the cross. The pursuit of human wisdom may bring an earthly pleasure or achievement but not contentment or happiness that we're looking and seeking after. Because man's wisdom will never bring true knowledge of the true God. Now, I'm not saying there's not well-educated people, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't go out and be well-educated. I'm not saying that we shouldn't just hide ourselves away and, and not understand what is going on around us. And to read and understand and deepen. I mean, there, obviously, Isaac Newton was one of the most brilliant men in history who was a Christian. And God can use him in a tremendous way to do the things that God needs uh, those people he's given the ability to think through, like Isaac Newton, to do the things for, for humans. But human wisdom is consistently rejecting God and opposing him in so many situations. Ultimately showing its foolishness and perishing in doing so. Because they they start leaning on their own understanding and leaning on all these wise people they've kind of like-minded gathering together. And they become a replacement of God's wisdom. They seek first of what they think and what their friends think before what God thinks about the situations. 
And that is where that is foolishness, God is saying. It's just foolishness. And see, Corinthians wanted to believe that the gospel itself was a superior form of wisdom. But the Greeks had this, were known for their wisdom, their philosophy. That's what they thought was more uh, superior, is their wisdom and their philosophy of thinking. But God's wisdom is not man's wisdom in some lighter form. A lot of people say, well, you take man's wisdom and you just kind of multiply it by a few, four or five times, and you got God's wisdom. No, they're not even comparable. There's not some person who's a man's wisdom who, who spent a lot of time with God and, and somehow his wisdom is, in, is in, improved so we can kind of trust in what he's thinking. No, we even know in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Do you see how opposite that is? There's no comparison there. They're not on the same plane. They're not on the same field. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So don't think because you're wise or you're getting around wise people that somehow that is going to be okay and, or enough versus God's ways and his thoughts and his direction, his, his wisdom. That's why we must go to him. That's why we must seek him with all of our heart and mind, soul, and strength for everything. Because we want his wisdom. We don't want the wisdom of man. Because it right there in the end of, uh, part of verse 21, it says, it pleased God. God takes pleasure in accomplishing our salvation in a way that no one would have expected. That his way of taking his only begotten son and taking him to the cross to, do, to die for the sin of the world is, is completely a different perspective than any of us would ever have thought to do. As part of the plan. But then he continues here in verse 22. And he says, um, for Jews request a sign. We're going to see three groups here. The Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks it's foolishness. So right here, instead of giving the Jews and the Greeks what they demanded in deliverance and wisdom, that's what they want. The Jews were seeking after a sign. The Greeks were seeking after wisdom to be able to somehow to accomplish this, 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 this heights or this, this achievement in life or wisdom in their, own, in their own understanding. They were seeking after those things. Christ, being the Messiah, met power and splendor and triumph. Crucified meant weakness and, and, and defeat and humiliation. And so when you put the two together, Christ crucified, this is the ultimate oxymoron for people to try to understand. But that's what Paul preached. That is what we preach is Christ crucified. You've got the power, the God himself willing to die in such a way for you because he loves you that much. And we see the fact that Paul highlights here in verse 23 and even 24 how 
it can be a stumbling block, the message of the cross for the Jews. Why? Because they were constantly looking for a sign. See, in Paul's day, the Jewish world was looking for the sign of this miraculous messianic signs that would, of deliverance that would take place. As they studied the Old Testament, they were experiencing over and over these, these miracles that were taking place. And they were not looking for the message of the cross. Their desire for deliverance was not bad. They wanted to be delivered from all the, the things and the, the persecution and the things that were happening in their life. They were constantly looking for deliverance. But the rejection of God's way of deliverance was what was bad. They wanted it done the way they wanted it done. They didn't want to, they didn't seek after how God was going to do it. They were seeking however they, they would like to do it. And that was the attitude of these of the of the Jews here. Their emphasis was on the miraculous signs, and the cross appeared to be weakness to them. The whole Jewish history shows that the miraculous events after another, the exodus out of Egypt, what an incredible miracle of deliverance. The days of Elijah and Elisha, what a miracle, what an incredible sign of God's deliverance to them. And when Jesus was ministering on the earth, the Jewish leaders repeatedly came to Jesus and constantly was asking, perform a sign, perform a sign. We want to see a sign. We want to see it. And Jesus rejected that because he knew the attitude. They knew what he, they were trying to look for. And he refused to show those, the signs to those Jewish leaders. But the problem was is that the Jewish nations did not understand their own sacred scriptures. They looked for a Messiah who would come like a mighty conqueror and defeat all their enemies. They were looking for a Messiah to come in on a great horse, not a donkey. One who was going to rally the people together to rise up with, with uh, mighty, uh, mighty power and to overthrow the Roman government. Not to go to the cross and die in such humiliation and such suffering. That was, not their, that was not their mindset. That was not in their wisdom. That wasn't part of their plan. But he would then set up his kingdom and return to the glory of Israel. And they wanted that as a mighty conqueror. But that's not how it played out. But it's interesting, as we see in the scriptures, the scribes, who also knew this, the law and the Old Testament really very well, they understood that the, the Messiah in the scriptures talked about a suffer and death. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 pointed toward a different kind of Messiah, not one of conquering. But the scholars could not reconcile this one between a conqueror with, that the Jewish leaders were thinking and the prophetic image of the fact that the Messiah was going to suffer and die for the, for the nation of Israel. How does those two go together? We, we, they couldn't figure it out. They didn't understand that the Messiah had to suffer and die before he could enter into his glory. And you can go back and read that in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. And that the future messianic kingdom would, was to be preceded by the age of the church. They just couldn't figure all that out in their own man's wisdom. 
But if they would just seek after God and let God speak to them and reveal and discernment, they would have, they would, God would have revealed that to them. And because the Jews were so locked in, so fixated for the power that this, their Messiah had to be a conqueror and powerful person, they stumbled at the weakness of the cross. And how could anyone, anyone in their right mind, that's how they thought, anyone in their right mind, how could anyone put a faith in an unemployed carpenter from Nazareth who died a shameful death of a common criminal? They just could not get over that reasoning. But Paul knew, Paul knew this experience personally. He had once was appalled by the fact that the, these Jewish, the, this Jewish group called the Way was following after and worshiping this criminal who had died on this cross and who proclaimed to be a Messiah, but he just died. And he, they were appalled to anyone who would focus on the crucified Christ. And it infuriated him to a point that he was so fixated on his own wisdom, of his own logic of as a religious leader, that he was willing to go around and persecute all of those who were part of the way. All of those who were following Jesus, they were, he was willing to put them in jail and have them killed. That's how fixated in his mind where he was. He thought this was just a curse by God, and we can see that according to Deuteronomy 21-23, and should be honored as a Messiah of the Lord. So he persecuted the church before being confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus that we see in Acts 9. Here is a person, religious leader, constantly can't believe anyone would follow this, this Jesus guy who died and on the cross. He's just a criminal. How can they do that and turn away from our, our heritage and our tradition of the Jewish faith? I am so appalled by this. I'm willing to put people in jail and kill them for it. Oh, watch out. Because you could be just like Paul on your high horse being knocked off and then blinded temporarily to get your attention. And there he did. He, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life was what? Transformed in an instant. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation, we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. After all, even the weakness of God on that cross is stronger than men that we will read as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. So the Jews, they looked for a sign. It was a stumbling block to them to even think of anyone wanting to follow Jesus. The message of the cross, that's just, that's just a stumble. That's, that's crazy. And then we see the Greeks. They, 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 they just laughed at the message of the cross. The Greek culture valued the pursuit of wisdom, usually expression of this high academic philosophical terms. That's what they pursued. If you got to that level, then you've arrived. You're very good. They did not value the wisdom expressed in the message of the cross. Their desire for the message was not bad. They wanted, to, you should learn, you should grow, you should understand, you should get to uh, further learning. 
But for that is your pursuit, if that is your God, then your message, your understanding, you're pursuing the wrong one. By rejecting God's wisdom, you're rejecting God. But that was the attitude of the Greeks. To them, the cross was foolishness. That's just laughable. The Greeks emphasized wisdom. Many still today study in depth the writings of the Greek philosophers and hold them as the ultimate eternal truth that they can hold on to. You'll hear it and you see it everywhere in every form. Oh, the Greek philosopher such and such said such and such. Like that is, that, that is like coming from God. For those who are Greek, those who are non-believing, those who are perishing, that you and I can understand. But for you and I as believers, those who are being saved, that is, that is not right thinking to trust in the philosophy of man. We are only to trust in the, the words, the wisdom of God, and, his word of, and that's his word of God. That is what we are to trust in. See, the Greeks saw no wisdom in the cross from their humanistic point of view. But had they had seeked after God's viewpoint and seeked after his wisdom, then God would have given that, that discernment of the wisdom of God and his great plan of salvation. See, Paul here in, in verse 20, if you remember here, in verse 20, that he called out three men to be a witness here. The wise, the expert, the scribe, the interpreter, the writer, the lawyer, the, the disputer, the philosopher, the debater. He called all three of them out. And he asked them one question here in his writings. He says, through all your studies in man's wisdom, and all the things in the studies and the wisdom, the reading you've in your world travel, have you come to know God in a personal way because of it? Have you? The answer, obviously, is no. They have searched and they've traveled the world upside down and they've seeked after all the historical knowledge and information you could possibly be available to them. But where did it leave them? They still do not have a personal relationship with the Savior. They're still going to hell. There's no value in all that they did. They did. It's still short-term thinking. It's not eternal thinking. It's world thinking, not biblical thinking. The fact that they laugh at the cross and consider it foolish is evident they are perishing. Verse 24 but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the Jews regarded Christ crucified as a stumbling block. The Greeks regarded Christ crucified as foolishness. But God did not respond to any polling party at this point in time. They didn't hire someone to say, go out and poll the people and let's see what the people think and what they would like to do. And then based on the polling, we'll change our message. 
Paul didn't change his message. When he went to the Jews, he preached the message of the cross. When they rejected him, he went to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, and what did he do? Did he change his, his uh, preaching? He didn't change his preaching. He still gave the message of the cross. And look at the fruit. Look at the, the incredible things that God did through the consistent message of the cross. So even back then, they were looking at Paul and said, your message of the cross, Jesus died and, and buried and resurrected in and, and taking the sins of the world on him, his shoulders on the cross. That's foolishness. That's laughable. They were doing it then, and it still happens today. So anyone here today in this time of age says we must change our message so that we can reach the community to reach this world. We've got to change the message to make it more palatable, make it more seeker-sensitive, friendly, so that they will come in and eventually they'll, 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 they'll get around us and they'll have this change of heart. See, you're, they're just like the Jews and just like the Greeks back then. They're changing the message. They're watering it down. We are not going to do that. We're going to continue to preach the message of the cross. Because that's where the power of God is for your life and my life and for theirs. That's what will save them. That's what will transform them. And anytime I get in my head that I need to stop talking about the cross of Jesus dying on the cross because people are going to somehow get too bored with it or too, oh, I've heard that. I want to hear other things. If I get that in my head, I know I'm going to be wrong because the power is in the message of the cross. Not in the wisdom of man. And we must stay focused on that. Because I'm watching around this world today, and I watch so many churches today, that you would never hear the message of the cross being preached. And it's, it's, it's quite saddening to see. We see the attitudes of some, some believed here. Those who have believed those who have been called by God's grace, who have responded by faith, realize that Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. You can go back and read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Jesus Christ is God's power and God's wisdom for your life and for mine. Not the Christ of the manger. Not the Christ of the temple, not the Christ of the marketplace, but Christ on the cross is where the power is. It is the death of Christ that God has revealed the foolishness of man's wisdom and the weakness of man's power. And he continues in verse 25, But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So all of this may sound foolish to people. May all seem, seem so weak that, that this, Jesus couldn't overcome all this. But even through the foolishness and the weakness of a man's perspective is still stronger than God, man's wisdom. 
They still fall short compared to the, the full picture of understanding of what God's unconditional love met by him coming to the cross for you and I. Because that's what it is. It's God's dramatic, unexpected act of love at Calvary that overcomes the, this, this wisdom of man. Because we are called into the fellowship because of our union with Jesus Christ. We are unified as a church body. As brothers and sisters, we are unified because of our love for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for you and I. We're united. He died for us. We were baptized in his name. We were identified with his cross. What a wonderful basis of our spiritual unity as brothers and sisters. But now Paul continues here. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He's basically looking and he's writing to the Corinthians church. He says, look at yourselves. <laughs> Just look at yourselves. Look who God has called as a child is his. Look who he's called and has brought you to him and he's saved you. Do you have anything to give? Do you have anything, any noteworthy? I mean, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You notice most of us are here are just as simple, plain people. And I'm so thankful for that. I don't know what I, what I would have done if I was looking and seeking after God and I walk into a church filled with well-known, notary, mighty, noble, wealthy people. I would have looked and said, I don't belong here. Obviously, I, you're supposed to be mighty and powerful and noble. That's the only way you're going to ha have a relationship with God. But Paul's reminding him, look at you. You're just a normal Joe and Jane. And God loves you so much, even though you are just absolute sinners to the core. You've messed up and you have such wicked history of living in sin. He has came to you and has saved you. Now what wisdom is that in the eyes of men? See, if you want to build a team, you're looking for the best people on the team, aren't you? You remember in high school, you're standing there, that dredged line, and always these, the best two athletic people were always the ones picked, and they had to get up front and then pick, okay, pick one name and pick the other name and pick teams, and you're going to go play, and you're like, oh, they're never going to pick me, and oh, I'm going to be the last person, oh. And they always pick the tallest person or the fastest person or the, the you know, the, the whatever it may be category. But do you see the wisdom of man, how they do, how we think? But God, he didn't look down on this earth and say, let me pick the wealthy people and the noble people. He says, let me pick you. Why? Because when I'm done with you, people are going to look at your life and go, 
amazing God. Amazing grace. You took him or you took her and you transformed and you took someone from ashes into beauty. How did that happen? By the grace of God and no one can get any glory for it. Do you see the wisdom of God? No one can boast. Because you and I know the transformation that has taken place in your life, you did not have one ounce of credit to boast for that. You are constantly on your knees every day thanking God for his grace and his mercy. And he gets all the credit. There's nothing that we're going to take credit for. And the challenge here in the Corinthian church is that they got saved. There were great things starting to happen, but then they started to go back to their old ways. They started allowing the way the world thinks to creep in. So obviously, the Corinthian church, uh, Christians started to begin thinking more highly of themselves because of God's work in them, that they've gotten all this knowledge now, and they've got their worldly wisdom. Now they've got this God's kind of knowledge, and they really are book smart, and they're putting them together, and now they're acting and putting themselves more highly, and they just go, oh, you know, you, you don't, kind of meet to our same level of standard of thinking. Our ways are pretty smart. We're pretty smart people here. And this, this highly thinking of themselves, this tendency to be puffed up in spiritual pride is your downfall. Go back and look, for, look at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and verses 18 and 19. Or 1 Corinthians 5, 2. There's constantly, Paul is going to be talking about this Corinthian church, how easily these people started getting puffed up and thinking they're more spiritual than other people. And that was causing the division within the church. But the gospel of God's grace leaves no room for personal boasting. They have not been chosen. You and I have not been chosen because we are something, something great. We were chosen because God is great. God called them not because of what they were, but in spite of what they were. These were ordinary people in the Corinthian church. Terrible sinners. Horrible sinners. But yet they were not too sinful for God to reach down and to save them. May that be in our hearts, my brothers and sisters, that as you travel in this community and you look to your left and your right at your workstation, that you don't get so spiritually prideful that you think those people are too sinful to be saved by God. That you and I get to a point where, stop, don't put out the word of God. Don't go reach out. We're, we're good. Our little, our little group in the church is just fine because they meet our standards of, our standards. Let's just put it that way. That's spiritual pride, my brothers and sisters. 
God has called the lowly. He's called you and I. And he has called to reach out to the whole world, regardless of their status in their sinful state. May we not look at anyone because of their current religion or their current status in society and ever, ever turn our eyes away where we are not willing to share the message of the cross. Because you and I will find ourselves being spiritually prideful and it's only a matter of time we will fall. Are you with me? We must reach the loss. As God brings people across your path, share the good news of what he has done in your life and what he's willing to do in, your life, in that person's life. Because God has called the weak and the ignorant. He's called the shepherds first, then he called the wise men. He called a bunch of fishermen then he called the educated, very highfalutin Paul. He didn't go to the wise men first and then, oh, we better not forget the shepherds. He, oh, let's go to Paul, the uh, religious leaders, the elite, and then we'll think about fishermen. No, no, no. Do you see God's wisdom? He started with the lonely, the ones who were outcasts, the ones who were in society, the working class. Because he knew he would get the glory doing a transformation in their life. God chose the foolish, the weak, the, the abased, and the despised to show the proud world their need for his grace. The problem that we find is that the world loves and admires the things of this world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but of the world. 1 John 2.16 But none of that gives him a guarantee of eternal life. None of it. The message and the miracle of God's grace in Jesus Christ is will utterly confound those who are high and mighty people of this world. I have watched over the years of the ministry the number of sinners whose lives were transformed by the power of the gospel. And the number of amazing things that have taken place in that person's life or in that family or in that community, it just absolutely confounds the the. the psychologists and psychiatrists. They'll come and they'll say, I remember the day when someone says, I have been working with this guy to help them overcome drugs and alcohol. And I, they come back for the next session and they no longer have the problem with the drug and alcohol. And they keep telling me something about Jesus Christ. The That's foolishness. What did you do? Oh, I love those moments. Because the, the psychologist, psychiatrist, thought the humanistic wisdom was going to somehow help that person. And it may. It may give them some tools and some things to help them cope with it. 
But does it save them? Does it heal them? Does it transform them? Does it give them the eternal hope? No. I can see a lawyer has come one time to a church and said, how did you save this marriage? We're going to go through a divorce, and now they don't want to get a divorce. They look like they're in love. They just got married. They're like honeymooners. Because of the message of the cross, lawyer. You are stepping them through the legalistic aspect. We took them back to where the foundation of who created marriage. Someone was about to give up hope. They were cutting themselves. They were starving themselves. They were doing all this. I'm sorry, doc, that the medications didn't work. I'm sorry that whatever you tried didn't work. But when you take them to the cross, the message of the cross, they become healed. There's no longer to display the the cuttings or the, the, the malnutrition or any other things that are going on in their life. They now have a hope of eternity. They have something greater than what the human, humanistic man's wisdom can give them. They have the wisdom of God, the transforming life of what Jesus Christ has done. That is why they are healed. That is why they're not crying out of hopelessness any longer. Because they finally heard God's truth. And they received it by faith. Now they walk by faith and not by sight any longer. And that is why you're seeing the transformation. And we'll close here in verse 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that is as it is risen, written, he who glorifies, let him glory in the Lord. Now, since every believer is in Christ, he has all, we have all that we need in Christ. We don't have to have or seek after the things of this world of what we need. It is God who has done all in all for you and I when we give our life to Christ. And we see Paul reminding the believers that if you're in Jesus Christ, he is your wisdom. Not this world. He is the one that's of righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your redemption. We see the fact that he is our wisdom. Go back in Colossians 2.3. True wisdom doesn't have to, to do with smart people. It has to do with God himself. God's wisdom is received in and through the person of Jesus Christ. You receive the wisdom of God by receiving Jesus Christ. But not only that, not only do we receive his wisdom, but we receive his work in that person's life when you receive Jesus and he says three things here that you, re, you and I receive. First one is righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness means that we are legally declared not only not guilty, but to have a positive righteousness, a right standing. He didn't come, you didn't, you couldn't 
you're guilty, and I'm guilty of our sins. And once you own it, and once you declare it, and once you get to a point in your life, you say, I'm a, such a sinner. How am I not going to be a sinner? God says, I'm going to make you not a sinner. Receive Jesus Christ into your life, and I will make you righteous. I'm going to put you in a right standing. You'll become as white as snow. You will not, I, you're not going to see the sin. I will not see the sin in your life. You've been forgiven. You're standing before God. You've been justified like you've never sinned before. God declares us righteousness in Jesus Christ. It means that the righteous deeds and the character of Jesus are accounted to us. It's put it into us. You couldn't earn it. You can't go work for it. It was given to you freely. We don't become righteousness by focusing on ourselves because Jesus became for us righteousness. I'm going to make it as application as I as simplified wise I can. If you want to move on in your relationship and to become this in deeper, solid walk, a Christian walk, if you want to overcome the things that have been plaguing you, the sins, the answer is to focus on Jesus and realize that He has forgiven you. And he's wiped away your past sins and future sins. He has placed you in the right standing before him. He has taken his character, character and has put it inside you. Let it come out. Let it just develop. That is who you are. You're not the old drunk, the old drug addict, the old sex addict, the old whatever addict. You're not the anger person. You're not the selfish person. The challenge is, is here's what happens to Christians. We become saved and then we focus more about ourselves. You go, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? How can I overcome it? Oh, I did it again. How am I going to? You constantly focus on ourselves. And the more you focus on the selves, the more miserable you become as a Christian. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking more about Jesus. And watch those things fade away, my friends. Now, the second thing he says is, is he is our sanctification. John chapter 17, verse 19. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Sanctification speaks of our behavior. How the believers are to, is to be separated from the world. And we're to be separated to God. We are to set apart uh, to belong to God and to serve him. We don't grow in sanctification by focusing on ourselves. That transformation through, uh, once you get saved and he starts cleaning you up and rebuilding you up from ground up, that takes time, that sanctification. But don't focus on yourself because then you just become more miserable and more frustrated. But allow him, just focus on him. Let him do the work in your life that he wants to do. And it will, you will be sanctified. You'll be transformed. Because when you focus on Jesus, you will realize 
Jesus became for us sanctification. And then third point he makes here is he is our redemption. Romans 3, 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word that we take from the slave trade. The idea is that we have been purchased to a permanent freedom. The fact that we are set free is because Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross for your sin and mine. We don't find freedom by focusing on ourselves. We actually become more in bondage. That's why if you're having a challenge with an addiction and you come to me, I don't mean to offend you. I really don't. I really lovingly say this. I don't trust in a program. I don't trust in anything other than the message of the cross, the transformation that Jesus Christ will do in your life. He's redeemed you. He has set you free from those addictions. You're no longer in bondage of that. So it's just one step. Keep taking the one step to Jesus every day. Keep taking one step. I'm not going to take you down 12 steps. I'm going to keep it simpler because I'm a simple kind of guy. One step, keep your eyes on Jesus. And watch him take you away from any addiction or challenge you have. I don't offend my brothers and sisters who follow the 12-step program. I really don't. But I have to keep it simpler. And I want to keep it simple for you. One step. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Because that's the message of the cross. There is no other message that has eternal value other than the message of the cross. Let us pray.